Well, we're looking at the Ten Commandments uh, in a larger study of the book of Deuteronomy. And before us today, we have um, one of the more familiar of the commandments, in large part because it's very, very brief, uh, and in large part because we think this is the one that we've got mastered. Amen. This is the one everybody thinks, okay, this one doesn't apply to me. Well, you don't have an excuse to check out on the preacher this morning because I think that you're going to find that this one hits closer to home than you may realize it. It is a very brief commandment. It's only four words in English, but in the Hebrew Bible, it's only two words. And the scripture says in the King James Bible, with which we're most familiar as far as the Ten Commandments are concerned, thou shalt not kill. The Hebrew text just simply says this, don't kill. That's literally what it says. But the command is not as general, and uh, nor is it as universal as that simple statement might seem to imply, largely because of the nature of the language that's employed. And here's what's helpful for us in terms of understanding what the Lord means when he gives what appears like a very broad-brushed commandment. In the Hebrew Scriptures, there are eight different words that can be translated kill. And each of them have a different shade of meaning. The one that's used here in the Ten Commandments, rasa in the Hebrew, is not one that refers to any kind of killing in general. It's a very specific word. It's a word that refers to acts of premeditated murder. It's a word that refers not only to murder, but to other kinds of unintentional killing, what we would call manslaughter. This particular word is never used in a legal setting. It's never used in a military setting. This particular word that's used in the Ten Commandments is never used for the hunting of animals, and it's never used for the killing of animals. It's a very specific word. And by using this specific word, we can understand that God is not making a broad brushstroke that prohibits all killing in a general sense. What this particular word prohibits is what we might call the unlawful or the unjust taking of another human life. Do you have it? When the Bible says, thou shalt not kill, what it's really saying is, thou shalt not unlawfully or unjustly take another human life. And this is why most of you who are using a modern translation like the English Standard Version or the New International Version or some other modern translation will usually see it rendered a bit more accurately than thou shalt not kill, where your translation like mine probably says you shall not what? Murder. That's right. And that's a better translation. Now with that in mind, <clears throat> the life principle that we want to apply is in fact one of the hallmarks of the people of God. It should be something that marks us, something that sets us apart from the rest of the world in which we live. Namely, the principle is that we learn as the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the very people of God, holy unto him, we should learn to honor and respect the value of life. That's the general principle that's bound up in the Ten Commandments. Now, it's commandments a bit more complex than what it may appear on the surface. So let's spend a few minutes this morning talking about what the Sixth Commandment does mean and what the Sixth Commandment does not need, uh, mean. We'll begin from the negative first. 
So let's take a couple of minutes to just talk about what the commandment does not mean. And there are several things that this command does not prohibit. A couple of them you may have picked up on in the introduction that we just gave. One, the command does not prohibit the killing of animals. That's the first thing that we should notice. And so those who typically land on this command to break into laboratories in order to liberate all the experimental mat or, uh, mice and rats and those who might be tempted to bust into the doors of the red lobster in order to liberate the lobsters from the water tank, they're just far off the mark as they can possibly be. Animals ought to be treated with respect and animals should not be abused. You don't just kill for the sake of killing. You don't just kill because it makes you feel a rush. There needs to be a personal or a societal or an environmental reason for it. But generally speaking, the sixth commandment has little or nothing to do with animal life. In fact, the Bible's very clear that there is a difference between humans and animals. Amen. Uh, remember, it was God who instituted a sacrificial system, for crying out loud, that required uh, the sacrifice of animals. And there are many times in Scripture that God very clearly says that it's all, uh, all right, it's okay to kill animals. Genesis 9-3, for example, God says to Noah and to his sons just after the floodwaters had receded, every moving thing that lives shall be yours for food. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you what? Everything. And you see that mirrored in the vision in the New Testament that God gave to Peter, for example, in Acts chapter 10 the vision of that great sheep being lowered from heaven that was filled with what? Animals, all kinds of different animals. And the Bible says there in verse 13 of Acts 10, there came a voice to Peter, rise Peter, what? Kill and eat. So the principle in the Bible is pretty consistent. Nothing wrong with being a vegetarian. It's just that you don't have to be. Praise God, you don't have to be. Amen. And many of you will be celebrating that here in just a couple of hours when you try to beat the Methodists to the restaurants after church is over today. Generally speaking, it is not a sin to kill animals. Perfectly acceptable to consume animals for food, though let me be very clear, there are many animals I absolutely will not consume. Amen. Second, the command does not prohibit killing as a means of self-defense. Self-defense simply means protecting yourself uh, or protecting your family, or God forbid, us protecting one another here in the house of God, protecting each other from violence or from attack. It's hard to imagine that there are actually some people that disagree with that, but some do. Uh, in fact, when they disagree with it, they'll point to Jesus' statement about turning the other cheek in support of never retaliating, even in the heat of a critical moment where you or your family may be immediately threatened and life may well be on the line. But the thing that I believe is true is that sometimes you have to take a life in order to save a life. And that's true in many particular areas when it comes to life. Jesus' statement there in Matthew chapter 5 about turning the other cheek didn't have anything to do with self-defense as we understand it. Certainly not when another life is on the line. When Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, he's talking about plotting and manipulating and scheming in order to enact retribution as you see fit. And there's a world of difference between that and protecting yourself against some kind of unexpected or un unprompted uh, attack. Jesus does not want you and I to manipulate 
or to scheme for the purpose of exacting revenge. Vengeance is his. It belongs to God. He makes that very clear in Scripture. Our Lord does not want us returning insult for insult. Jesus was a great model of that himself when he stood at the critical hour of his life. Jesus makes it very clear. I read it in my devotional reading this morning. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's a good uh, general rule for the course of life. But the sixth commandment doesn't have anything to do when it comes to protecting yourself, your home, your family, or protecting the lives of others who may be under threat. Everybody with me say amen. Third, the command does not prohibit capital punishment. Often in Scripture, God not only allows capital punishment, God prescribes it. There are certain crimes in the Bible <clears throat> that we might call class X offenses where God calls for the death penalty. There are several of them that we could list today. But at the top of that list is the unjust taking of a human life. Leviticus 24, 17, for example, says, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. And so let it be known that our God is a God of justice. Isn't that right? He's a God who loves justice, a God who desires justice uh, in this world. And it's not for you and me to decide what matters of justice ought to be meted out. God is a God of justice, but this is part of the reason why God has devised what we know as systems of government. And God vests in them an authority to protect society by doing several things. But ultimately, he's given to the government authorities the right to maintain law and order in a civil society. And a part of that, of course, involves the punishment of wrongdoers. Romans 13 and verse 4, the apostle Paul says, for the government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God. He, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So capital punishment doesn't come into play with respect to the sixth commandment, though God makes it very clear that's not a role or responsibility that we have a right to vest in ourselves. That's why God creates the government and God gives them that authority to protect society. And again, another example of sometimes uh, the way you save lives is by taking a life. I think it's perfectly consistent for a believer to say they value human life and still support capital punishment for the worst of crimes. So there'll be many people that get in your face, particularly those who are the champion of the, rights of the right to life as it pertains to those in the womb. And they'll tell you, you're not being consistent. Can I say you're being absolutely consistent? There's a world of difference between the two, uh, and it's an argument that really doesn't hold water. Uh, you can, in a consistent kind of way, make it very clear that you value and champion human life while supporting the taking of a life for those who have abused one of the most cardinal principles, and that is the value of life itself. Now, that doesn't mean we have to organize a parade over it, and no doubt the circumstances that lead to capital punishment are very sad and very regrettable, but the point today isn't so much to make a case for it or against it, 
It's simply to say that capital punishment for the worst of crimes in a civil society is not what the sixth commandment is talking about. Everybody tracking with me, would you say amen? And then finally, from a negative standpoint, the command does not prohibit killing as an act of war. The Bible says that there are some things that are worth fighting for. Would you not agree? Ecclesiastes 3 makes that very clear. There is a time for war. And again, many times, as we've already seen here in Deuteronomy, as we'll see many other times in the book of Joshua and then beyond, God frequently sends his own people into battle with very detailed instructions in terms of what they're to do. And those men of God who went into battle in the name of God took the lives of others under the instruction and under the direction of God. And many of them lost their own lives in those conflicts that God very clearly supported. Now let me say this morning, y'all still with me say amen. Not every war is a just war. Some wars are criminal. I could see a time where if we were involved in a war and it was not a just war, you would be very biblically sound to say, I, this is crazy. And there have been many examples that we can give with respect to that. Having said that, there are many, many other times where it's clearly right to fight. It's right to fight to defend freedom. It's right to fight to protect the innocent. It's right to fight to stop the spread of evil and to stop the spread of tyranny. Again, sometimes it's necessary to take lives in order to save lives. And we in our nation have fought many wars under that very principle, and it was right to do that. All that's necessary, Edmund Burke said, for evil to triumph is for good men and women, we might add, to do what? Nothing. So when God says, do not murder, let's just be clear, he's not talking about taking the lives of others in a just war. There are other things that we could talk about. Those are just some of the major things that this command does not involve, that this command does not include. So having said all of that, let's turn our attention to the positive, talk about what the command does mean. Because as I read the sixth commandment, I think God is prohibiting four uh, general things that I think we can take to the bank. Uh, first, the command prohibits what we simply might call intentional murder. Uh, this would include not only premeditated murder, but many forms of manslaughter uh, as well, even though those kinds of situations are often less serious. This is part of the reason, as we'll see later on in our study of Deuteronomy, that God establishes the cities of refuge, not for those who had in a premeditated kind of way taken another life. God was very clear about that. Their lives should forfeit. But for those who had taken another human life in an unpremeditated kind of way, and yet, having said that, God still took those kinds of situations very seriously. But most of the time when we think about thou shall not kill, this is typically what we think about, particularly when we read about it from the standpoint of a modern translation where the Bible says it pretty overtly, thou shalt not murder. Whew. Man, I'm in the clear on this one. Well, just buckle up, friends and neighbors, because I'm going to get to something that you may not have thought about here in just a minute. But obviously, the most overt way to understand that is very clear here. And it's a problem in our country where the murder rate in the United States 
in the year 2020. Maybe COVID had something to do with it. Did, are you aware? Everybody was shut in in 2020, and yet the murder rates skyrocketed 30% in the United States. 30%. When everybody was supposedly isolated, maybe it drove us crazy. I don't know. And then the following year, 2021, it jumped another 5%. It just seems to keep going up. 22,000 plus homicides in the United States in the year 2020, with a third of those 22,000 taking place in five of the 50 states. And yes, you guessed it, our state's one of the five. Our state comes in number three on the murder rate. Only California <clears throat> and uh, the state of Texas have a higher murder rate than the state of Florida. The other two, Illinois and Pennsylvania, largely because of the big cities uh, in those states. I mean, we talk about third world Islamic countries, but the fact is the United States of America has the highest murder rate per capita in the world. According to the Centers for Disease Control, more teenagers die from homicide in the United States than die from illness. And that really shouldn't surprise us because <clears throat> by the time the average American child reaches the sixth grade, they have witnessed over 8,000 murders watching television and over 100,000 acts of violence watching television. This is not by the time they graduate from high school. It's by the time they reach the sixth grade. And I don't even have time to talk about video games and comic books and things of that nature. We just live in a, nat a nation where violence is becoming more and more glorified. Death is becoming glorified. In movies, not becoming, it is glorified. Movies, art, literature, to the point we practically become desensitized to it. We shrug our shoulders, even when it's a mass situation, because we just have seen it so often, it no longer shocks us. And unfortunately, I'm afraid it no longer even saddens us. Did you know most murders in this country are family-related? The first murder in the Bible was a family-related murder, where brother took the life of brother. And how ironic, because the home is supposed to be the safest place on the planet. Our home is supposed to be a place of safety. But many homes today are so violent, kids would rather hang out in the streets and go home. They don't want to hear the yelling. They don't want to hear the screaming. They don't want to see the acts of violence. They don't even have to turn on the television to see it. It's real life in their own world every day. So whether it's within the family or not, when God says you shall not kill, he means fundamentally we're not to unjustly take another human life. And the people of God ought to be the ones championing life and speaking out against this glorification of all that is so clearly wrong when it comes to human relationships in our country and around the world. Second, when the Bible says you shall not kill, the command uh, does prohibit suicide. Suicide. And you know why? Because suicide is self-inflicted murder. That's all in the world it is. And when it comes to a suicide, let me be very clear. God says, don't do it. Don't do it. In fact, 
in that list published by the Centers for Disease Control, suicide is the third leading cause of death for teenagers in this country, right behind accidents, one, and homicide, number two. In third, again, we hadn't even got to illness. Accidents, homicide, suicide are the three leading causes of death among teenagers. And some might argue, and I've heard many people make the argument, well, it's, you know, it's my life. You shouldn't have a right to tell me what to do with it. I have a right to do with my life as I please. But you know what the Bible would say to that? No, it's not, and no, you don't. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You say, well, preacher, that's obviously talking to the people of God who possess the Holy Spirit. Oh, no. Well, it is. But let's be very clear. Every human being, regardless of whether they're possessed by the Holy Spirit or not, is created in the image of God. Created by God, created for God. It matters not whether you'll follow the Lord Jesus Christ or whether you're a secular humanist, it does not matter. Your body is not yours, and no, you don't have the right to do with it whatever you want. Everybody will stand before the Lord and give an accounting for the stewardship of their lives, including the stewardship of your own body. Our lives belong to God. That's because your life comes from God. God has given you life, and God has a plan for how he wants you to live your life, and only God has the right to take life away. We need to teach that to our children. You never take matters pertaining to life into your own hands, whether it's regarding somebody else's life or whether it's regarding your own life. That's a right that belongs exclusively to God. Let me say it today. Only God is sovereign over matters of life and death. Now, could a Christian commit suicide in a moment of deep despondency, mental instability? Of course they can. And sometimes they do. I have presided over many funerals where someone who was part of my church forfeited their own life, took their own life. And many people want to know, does that believer, that genuine believer forfeit eternal life if they take their own life? No, they don't. Not if they've truly been born again. The question is not how you die. The question is who you know. And if you trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, if you die born again as a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you wake up in the presence of God and it doesn't matter how your life is ended. Now, I say that as a theological matter. I hesitate to say it as a practical matter because I don't want to give anybody any fodder to say, well, if I take my own life, it's all good because I'm going to end up in the eternal presence of God. You better be very careful about that because the only thing suicide does is make the judgment shameful for you and it makes life this side of heaven painful for those you leave behind. Last time I what a what a terrible testimony. Anybody who claims to follow the Lord Jesus Christ to forfeit their own life is demonstrating they really aren't testifying in a proper way to what they say they believe about Jesus. Because our faith 
is a faith that's based on hope. Friends, I'm saying this morning, we have a God we can trust. Amen. A God who always delivers on his promises. And that's why it's so important, no matter how difficult life becomes, don't lose heart. You may be at the end of your rope, but if you truly know Jesus, you're never at the end of your hope. Amen. There's always hope. There's always a reason for living. God's grace is sufficient for you. As the old song says, life is worth the living just because he lives. There's a third thing about this command, namely that it prohibits what we might call mercy killing. Mercy killing. What's often referred to as euthanasia. This is what we might call the intentional taking of a life because of deformity or disability or old age or disease or whatever the case might be. Don't confuse the issue, please, because this is not what we mean when we talk about removing life support and allowing someone to die naturally who would in fact die otherwise, who cannot live apart from artificial means of support. It's not the same thing. We talk about mercy killing or euthanasia. That's actively causing somebody's death. Not, not, not uh, prolonging life artificially, but actively causing someone's death, either because it's too inconvenient or because you don't think that their life deserves to continue. There was a time this was only a problem in certain corners of Europe. But it's hot-button issue. It's no longer isolated to certain parts of the world. It's now legal for doctors in some states in the United States to assist people with ending their lives. And, of course, you've got to be very careful with that because the next step is for those same doctors or for some family member or even the state to decide when you should die or under what circumstances you should die, something that clearly violates the tenor of the sixth commandment. Job 12 and verse 10 says, in God's hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. So let me say it again. God is the sovereign Lord over matters of life and death. And only God has the right to determine when it's time for me or you or anybody else to leave this life and to stand in his eternal presence. Everybody tracking with me so far? Amen. A final thing that I would mention uh, is that the command prohibits abortion. Abortion. Our nation is obviously undergoing some change regarding the legality of abortion since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade just a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago. That edict of the court did not automatically render an abortion illegal in the United States. It simply returned the matters to the states to legislate, and clearly it remains an ongoing issue. It's going to remain an ongoing issue until Jesus comes again. According to the World Health Organization, there are somewhere between 40 and 50 million abortions performed every year throughout the world. That's about 125,000 abortions every day, both in our country or somewhere around the globe. And you know what the real issue is, don't you? <clears throat> the real issue concerns the matter of when life begins. And even not every religious group 
lands on the same page here. When does life begin? I mean, if, if you make an argument, as certainly as I do and as we do, that life begins at conception, then obviously the taking of that life, even in the womb, is obviously problematic. Isn't that right? If you make an argument that life does not <clears throat> begin at conception, that a conceived life is only potential life until some arbitrary time when it becomes a viable human being, then you typically make an argument that it's okay within a certain window to take that life. But I think the Bible is very clear about when life begins, don't you? I mean, Jeremiah chapter 1 says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I mean, that's preconception right there. Isn't that right? Before I formed you in the womb, God tells the prophet, I knew you. The Spirit of God basically told the same thing to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He was set apart from before the time of his birth. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And of course, the great Psalm 139, look at verse 13. For you formed, David is writing this as a paean of praise to God for the majesty of the creative power of God himself. And he says in this song to his heavenly father, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's <clears throat> womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I think it's safe to say from God's perspective as contained in his eternal word that we're not talking about a blob of unformed tissue. That's a human life contained in the mother's womb. It's interesting that in the New Testament when the Bible refers to John the Baptist leaping in the womb of his mother's Elizabeth, there's a very specific word to describe John the Baptist and what is it? The baby, the baby leapt in its mother's womb. So we believe that life begins at conception, created in the image of God, and that that life matters to God. And because that life matters to God, that life ought to matter to you and me as well. So this is a little bit about what I know, what I believe about the sixth commandment. Not as cut and dried as it appears on the surface now, is it? Let me say as we conclude this morning that I'm aware that a message like this oftentimes when you take it in totality has the potential of maybe striking a sensitive nerve in some people. Can I just say this morning the last thing that I want to do is create a sense of guilt in anybody's life. Create a sense of shame in anyone's life. I stand 
before the people of God just as great a sinner as anybody else is in here. And I'm thankful for the grace of God. I'm grateful for God's unconditional forgiveness in my life. And you and I need to remember that regardless of what's happened in your past, God's not nearly as concerned with what's going on behind you as he is with where you are today and what's about to happen in the days to come. He's concerned about how he's moving in your life today and what he wants to do with your life in the future. And I'm just here to say this morning that regardless of what happened in your past, there's always forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's always acceptance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you may well have had an abortion. I've had many in my church over the years confess I had that happen and thank God for the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in my life. There may be some of you here this morning that had a loved one take another's life. Maybe they're in prison today or maybe you've had someone in your life who's committed suicide. Maybe they had a profession about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where Romans 8.1 comes into play, and I'm so thankful for it. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And no condemnation means no condemnation. Sad truth is, we all get caught by the sixth commandment. Because unless you're just walking around perfect, we've all committed murder at some point right here in our hearts. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 5? That if you hate your brother or if you harbor anger against someone else, that fundamentally you're really no different than a murderer in the eyes of God. Matthew 5, 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. So Jesus quotes it right off the page. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22, but I say to you, and every time I read that, you know what the first thing that comes into my mind is? Uh-oh. <laughs> but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 1 John 3.15 says it even more directly. Everyone who hates his brother is a what? Say it out loud. Is a murderer. Not as like a murderer, but you are one. Are there any character assassins in the house of the Lord today? If so, you may want to add a fifth bullet point to that last list. Namely, God says no to anger and bitterness of the heart. The main point of the message is very simple. Life comes from God. And life has value because life comes from God and only God is sovereign over matters of life and death. And listen up good. If God values life, make no mistake, the people of God ought to value life just like he does. This is the message of God's word today. And all God's family said,